Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 911. On this episode, we begin by welcoming Bill James to the podcast. David, Lorla, and Bill reflect on the new Bill James Historical Baseball Abstract from 2001, and specifically Bill's all-time rankings of players at each position. How have the legacies of players like Sandy Koufax or Barry Bonds changed in the past 20 years, especially with a few more decades of new baseball greats? And how does Bill feel today about Daryl Evans, who he called the most underrated player in baseball history? In my mind, Daryl Evans is not only a, a Hall of Famer, but he isn't a, a borderline Hall of Famer. To me, he's above the standard of being a, above the standard necessary to be a Hall of Famer. He's a, he's a clear, no doubt, Hall of Famer to me. After that, Jay Jaffe is joined by Kevin Goldstein to discuss the Padres signing Fernando Tatis Jr. to his monumental contract extension. Jay and Kevin react to the deal before talking about potential historical comps for Tatis, who seems set to be the face of the San Diego franchise for a long time. Also, what does spending like this mean for teams and fans around the rest of the league? It just says to other teams, like, maybe the act isn't going to work. You can't scream from the trees biblical losses because teams are going to go, well, the Padres do it. You can't just... Right. Yeah, you because know, a lot of teams do that. Like, well, we're not the Yankees. We're not the Dodgers. And like, right. you can go, well, you're kind of the Padres, right? Right. In the final segment, Ben Clemens and Dan Zaborski discuss the Cincinnati Reds, who have had a strange offseason after a few encouraging ones. While the club has its share of talent and exciting players, there are some concerning holes, and the overall plan seems to be quite confusing. They have 75 outfielders, none of whom can play center field. <laughs> um, <laughs> they have 75 shortstops. They're all below replacement level. And yeah, it's odd. <laughs> it's, it's just really weird. It seems like the the kind of team that an AI who didn't understand what they were doing might might come up with for how to build a team. Fangraphs Audio is brought to you by our listeners and supporters. If you enjoyed the program and are interested in helping us out, consider checking out the store over at Fangraphs.com. We have merch as well as ad-free subscriptions, both of which make excellent gifts for a friend or for yourself. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest on this podcast is Bill James, who I think it's safe to say doesn't need, you know, more of an introduction than just that. We are talking on early Wednesday evening, so I will ask you, Bill, how are things in Kansas on an early Wednesday evening in early spring? The uh, very early spring, it was negative degrees here until about two days ago. Yesterday was lovely, got up to 71, so it's great to be moving close to the point at which we could walk around. And it's right. And there is, of course, baseball season coming. And it will be nice if we're all in ballparks in, in a few months in, in 71 degree weather. Right. So a few weeks back, I was paging through the new Bill James Historical Baseball Abstract, which came out in uh, 2001. And that is what more or less prompted me wanting to to get Bill on the pod, because the ab abstract has rankings of the 100 best players at each position, as of 2001, of course. And everybody loves to debate rankings. And I guess before, and we're going to go, I think, sort of a nine-inning thing and touch briefly on a player or two at all nine positions. But to start, Bill, uh, this book is about a 1,000 pages. Exactly how long did it take for you to put this together? Uh, I think I worked on that book solid for about four years. That's my memory. But honestly, I'm very unfocused, and I jumped from one project to another. So maybe it was only six months. Who knows? <laughs> no, there's, there is a lot in there. 
Have you thought much, Bill, about whether or not those rankings would be the same, you know, with the same players, if you put the book together today? Well, uh, many of them would be, but there are three reasons they would change. Uh, One is we've got 20 more years of history, which is a lot. Two is that we have much better information in not just one way, but in a lot of different ways. Uh, And the third is that I don't believe in carrying around a ranking in my head or trying to keep a ranking the same. I think when I go back to the subject, I try to forget whatever it was I wrote last time and look at it again. Uh, so, I mean, there, there would be, there would be a lot of changes, but I mean, Ty Cobb is who he was. He hasn't played any more games since then, so he doesn't move up or down. No, he hasn't. And that's always the big Hall of Fame argument uh, of voting uh, year to year. But let's start at first base and touch on a few players who, of course, weren't in the 2001 abstract for for obvious reasons, which were Joey Votto, Paul Goldschmidt, and Albert Pujols. Where do you think they would rank if you were putting together this list now? Maybe not exactly, but in in, which ballpark? No, no pun intended. Well, Albert Pujols is probably is trying mightily to move down the list, but since my general idea is ranking players on what they do at their best, uh, probably Pujols is number two at first base. It's Pujols, it's Gehrig number one, I think, and then it's Pujols or Jimmy Fox number two, and I'm inclined to say it's Pujols. There are more really good first basemen in the 21st century, I think, than really good players at any other position. Mark Teixeira isn't going to be top five or top ten, but that was a really good player. And you know, the guys we have now, Freddie Freeman and Paul Goldschmidt, the players we have now at first base are, are very, very good. And there would be, I'm guessing, 20, 21st century first basemen who would make the top 100 list, probably. And Joey Votto included in that? Oh, sure. Votto... I did not look specifically at that issue. I'd say Votto is top 15. And Carlos Delgado, I mean, he was a beast. He had numbers comparable. And and, uh, Helton, Colorado, I I certainly believe Helton should be in the Hall of Fame. And I know about the inflation of the park, obviously, but the numbers are so spectacular that even if you allow for the fact he's in a great park for a hitter and allow for the fact that it's the steroid era, he still wins an awful lot of games for his team with those numbers. So Helton would be way up there. There'd be a lot of first basemen up there. And I think that there are a few uh, second basemen who have played since uh, 2001 who would belong. And I think uh, Chase Utley would be high on your list. I'm just very fond of Chase Utley. And maybe I'm, I'm not a Dodger fan, so yeah. Uh, Utley had a very wide array of unique skills. Uh, there was a period from 2006 to 2010 or thereabouts when the people I worked with, we would sit down once a year and say, okay, what can we measure that we haven't been measuring before? And it would be things like advanced positioning for shifting in the right way on a double play or going from first to third on a single or most anything. And it would turn out that whatever it was you were trying to measure that you hadn't measured before, Chase Utley would be the best guy in the majors. Uh, this happened so often that we would make a joke about it. He'd say, you know, we could measure this, but Chase Utley would just come to the top. And you couldn't really 
it's, it presents a challenge for rating a player because is it unfair to consider that stuff when you don't have any parallel information for Nelly Fox or Joe Morgan or, or Annapolis Joy? But you can't ignore it either. He was, he was a, a much better player than people often realized. Good enough that he would probably make your top 20 at second base? Oh, certainly. Certainly top 20. I, I don't know exactly where in there, but somewhere there. Right. Well, let's jump now to third base and address a player who is not contemporary, which would be Daryl Evans, who I think is the best to bring up here because in 2001, you called him the most underrated player in, in baseball history. I believe you had him the 10th best third baseman. That, I, I still agree with that. I looked at that issue today, trying to isolate the most underrated players by things like the ratio of base hits to secondary bases and and the number of runs scored and driven in relative to his and defensive contribution relative to other players. I, I don't think there's anybody else who is as underrated. I, I still believe that to be not only reasonable, but actually true. Uh, that In my mind, Darrell Evans is not only a, a Hall of Famer, but he isn't a, a borderline Hall of Famer. To me, he's above the standard of being a, above the standard necessary to be a Hall of Famer. He's a, he's a clear no doubt, Hall of Famer, to me. Which brings us to a player who a lot of people think are overrated, who is sailing, who has sailed into the Hall of Fame first ballot, which is Derek Jeter. Where might he rank in your top shortstops list? Having fifth. I mean, I get the argument that Jeter is terribly overrated. He is fielding the second half of his career was not a positive for his team. But, you know, somehow that team managed to win some games anyway. In a sense, he's like Pete Rose in that what he was capable of doing, he went out and did every year. And the Yankee media made an outsized hero of him, and it was kind of annoying. But he was a very good player and contributed a lot to his team and did it every year. And I have him behind Wagner, Ripken, Archie Vaughn, Yount, and then he's the number five shortstop of all time, I think. Which is pretty impressive. One other shortstop question, Bill. How long would Fernando Tatis Jr. have to play at his early career level to rank highly on your list? I'm always afraid of ranking a player while the numbers are still moving. And I'm afraid of it because I've made mistakes doing that in the past. You know, sometimes you, you see a young player has 300 homers and it seems like, well, there's no question he's going to get 600. He winds up with 321, you know. I, I, I'm very reluctant to... Uh, what the hell? I'll give you an answer. Four years. <laughs> hey, some answer is better than, than no answer, perhaps. <laughs> Let's go to catcher, Bill. Ted Simmons will be inducted this summer uh, along with Jeter. You had him, I believe, at number 10, right in front of uh, Joe Torre, who was, of course, very, very underrated. Right. Uh, I looked at that issue since we talked yesterday, and I think I had him in the right place four years ago. I still would put him right ahead of Torre and right behind Gabby Hartnett. But since then, Ivan Rodriguez was below him at that time, and obviously Rodriguez would be very near the top of the list now. The 20th, 21st century catchers, Posada and Maurer and uh, Yadier and Posey, they're in the same group and they're close to Simmons. But at this time, I wouldn't put any one of them ahead of him. Right. And as you mentioned, Bill, it's hard to rank players when they're moving along in their career. On the pitching side, you had Sandy Koufax ranked number 10. Seems, seems like we have a lot of 10s here here randomly. 
Pedro Martinez was 29, but of course he went on to play, I think, seven or eight, eight more seasons after the book came out. Would Pedro now be ranked ahead of Sandy, or would he still be behind him? He would, he would still be, he would be ahead of him. I, I haven't changed my opinion about Koufax. I have Koufax much higher ranked than War would have him, or than my own windshare system would have him. I think that those systems are missing something that Koufax had that we can't quite measure yet. So I, I would stick with the evaluation of him that I have. But since then, we've had uh, Clements has completed his fantastic career, and uh, Greg Maddox, most half of his career since then. Randy Johnson won three or four Siam Awards after that, and Pedro. I think all four of those would move past him. So Koufax drops from 10th to 14th with Pedro at 13th. That's the way I see it. One of the problems with this conversation we're having, Bill, is uh, we could probably spend hours if if we really covered things thoroughly, which we don't. So we, let's jump to uh, the outfield, and we'll start in right field, which is, uh, and we'll go with a player who I was surprised to see ranked quite as high as he was. This was a player who was uh, in front of Andre Dawson, uh, Reggie Smith, Tony Oliva, and Dwight Evans, and that was Bobby Mercer, who you had at seventeen. No, you're just making that up. No. Yeah, I looked at that today, and it, 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 it's a, my bad. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking of. I, I I did like Mercer, and I still do like Mercer as a player, and I think he's underrated. But putting him ahead of those guys doesn't seem to be justified, and I, I don't – I wouldn't do it now. Yeah. Do you think that would have been win shares for that decision? I don't think so. Well, it might have been. Some of it might have been. But uh, his win shares number is not – it's not off the charts, and I ignore that if it's if it doesn't explain what I otherwise know. I, I doubt that was it. It's just a, I don't know what it was. Yeah, it, it may be unexplainable. You you are somebody who normally does not let bias creep into your into what you say. I I try not to, but also I'm a human being, and <laughs> that happens. Yes. Uh, let's jump to center field. Uh, another player who is currently on the Hall of Fame ballot and is somewhat controversial in terms of Hall credentials, which is Andrew Jones. Right. Well, talking about Andrew Jones and Kenny Lofton, right? I don't see, I know I don't see a Hall of Famer in Andrew Jones. I don't see a Hall of Fame candidate. But I've talked about that many times in many places and it makes people mad. So let's move on. Kenny Lofton to me is easy. I don't. I see Kenny as a, a clear and, you know, way above the line Hall of Famer, and I'm disappointed he hasn't gotten in. The issue about Andrew Jones is whether his fielding evaluations in war are reliable. And this may not be an exactly true statement, but I think war regards him as being twice as good a center fielder as Willie Mays. And I just don't know that that's a credible evaluation. I know he's a good outfielder, but, I, you know, his hitting numbers are really not impressive in the middle of the steroid era. And uh, uh, I just don't see him at that level. Not as high as uh, Kenny Lofton. Definitely not. Right. Let's uh, jump to, to left field, which has some of the greatest players of all time, certainly. Your 2001 list was one, Ted Williams, two, Stan Musial, three, Barry Bonds, who proceeded to hit 73 home runs the year the book came out. And I believe he had close to 200 after that, would he have moved up ahead of Musial or Williams, or does he stay behind them? No, he would stay behind them. Let me try to explain why. At the time, 
that the book was written, the use of steroids had be begun to emerge as an issue, but it was, wasn't regarded or understood the way it is now. Now, I don't agree with the people who keep Bonds out of the Hall of Fame or McGuire out of the Hall of Fame or Clemens because of a PED issue. I don't agree with that. But neither am I saying you can't put any value on it. If everyone had been using steroids, then everyone would be on the same field, on a level field, and whatever they did would be legitimate to me. But when some players are using a little bit of help, and some players are getting a lot of help, and some people's players are standing on stilts, you have to make some adjustment for the inequality. And I think the adjustment for the inequality is enough to keep Bonds from moving ahead of Ted Williams or Stan Musial. And Musial, as uh, I mentioned when we spoke yesterday, in my opinion, might be the most underrated, you know, all-time great player. Right. He's not just a 330 hitter, 331. Uh, he's not just a guy who had almost 500 homers. He, he was very fast. He had 20 triples in a year, 18 triples in a year, very high averages. And, you know, he could play center field if need be, left field quite, quite well, first base. He moved around to do whatever the team needed him. You're, you're absolutely right. He's a multifaceted player. And with all-time great players in mind, let's close with the fact that you had an all-time top 100 list in, in the book, and we don't really have time to address much of it, but... You, no, no, I want to go 1 to 100. <laughs> 1 to 100. But you did have Babe Ruth number one, and what stands out to me, Bill, is that you had two Negro League players in, in your top 10. Right. And we know more about those guys now than we did years ago during the, due to the research that's been done. So, yeah, we have at least two in the top 10, and I don't think either one of those guys has dropped out. I don't know, maybe they would. You have to put much as we may not like him, and I like A-Rod less than I do Jeter, but you have to put A-Rod pretty near the top of the list, so maybe knock somebody out. I don't know. I do. When the pandemic's over, I, I want to get back to the Negro Leagues and, and uh, sit down with Bob Kendrick and talk it through and see if there's any other adjustments I should make. Right, and Oscar Charleston and, and Josh Gibson were, were the two players. Okay, I think we are out of time. So once again, um, I am David Lorela. That was Bill James. And Bill, thank you much for your time. Thank you, sir. Hello, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. Last week, Fernando Tatis Jr. agreed to one of the largest contracts in baseball history, a 14-year, $340 million deal that will carry him through his age 35 season. The Tatis deal obviously set a lot of jaws dropping throughout baseball because the Padres are not really known as a, as a big market team, yet they've already handed out one $300 million contract before that to Manny Machado just a couple of years ago. The Tatis deal set off in my mind some research I did a few years ago in relation to Ronald Acuna Jr. regarding the frequency with which players who reach the majors at, at a young age wind up in the Hall of Fame simply because they've been, they have have such talent that they've reached the majors so quickly. Looking back at my research now and correcting it and updating it, what I found was, for example, that a player who debuts in the majors at age 20 reaches the Hall of Fame about, about 9% of the time just by getting a single plate appearance. By getting 100 plate appearances, he reaches the Hall of Fame about 17% of the time. And by getting 250 plate appearances, he reaches the Hall of Fame about 25% of the time. 
Looking at that, I decided it would be worth delving further into Tatis's accomplishments to date and comparing them historically. And what I found was basically that players who produce at the level that Tatis has done through age 21 reach the Hall of Fame roughly somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of the time once you weed out the players who are not yet eligible and, and perhaps on their way or probably have already ruled themselves out. It's a pretty strong finding, and of course, the entire internet misunderstood it. <laughs> but by suggesting that I was simply saying that that Fernando Tatis was automatic, I made a comment in there. I made I made a comment in in there, essentially saying the skeptic in all of us may be saying, "Whoa, let's pump the brakes on this kind of talk." And not ten minutes after I tweeted out the piece, somebody literally said, "Let's pump the brakes on this" in response to my piece. So uh, that was that was a fun Friday afternoon. Anyway, I wanted to talk more about this piece for Fangraphs Audio with Kevin Goldstein, who's here and who had a uh, who's who with his in his time with the Astros had a front row seat as in watching a player who I think parallels Tatis in some ways in Carlos Correa. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Hey, Jay. This is quite a change. Me on the other end of the podcast here uh, <laughs> uh, with you because I know I, I know I did did uh, uh, a couple spots on yeah, on, yeah you were uh, you were up and in on up and in I did I did 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 a, did a co host thing and I was certainly thrilled to, to see you uh, and to hear you back. Uh, You'll be on the uh, new one the too. I promise. Game. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm sure I will in time, but. Uh, uh, it feels very very weird to be to be le- leading in because I've done about uh, you know one one of these for every one hundred that you've done. So I wanted to get your thoughts first of all about just about the Tatis contract in general and 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 your reaction to it. You know, it, it's it's funny. Say at first, I, I'll use your phrase. It was a little jaw dropping. I, I think I was maybe. I'm sure I was more surprised at the 14 years. Like you said, it takes him into his mid-30s than I was maybe the total number. And, you know, reading your piece, not to wax your car too much, really kind of opened my eyes because my, you know, my first thought was, I mean, he's so good and so young and, and you just don't see this a lot. And that was just like a vague understanding of it. And, and when I read your piece, I was like, oh, wait a second. This isn't so good, so young. This is kind of historic. You know, to have a player this good, this young, and you talk about some of those percentages, you know, the 9% and the 17%, and that might not seem so high at first, but you're talking about, you know, 10 to 1 and then 6 to 1 odds for a guy who gets legitimate plate appearances so young. And, you know, a long time ago, I know he's part of this podcast, I think Bill James was the guy who theorized that, that one player every year who debuts is a Hall of Famer. And the math kind of checked out. It wasn't perfect, but it was a nice little way to go. And the fact that we can bet so hard on on just these guys who come up so young, and part of it's because they have you know a much greater opportunity to accumulate counting stats, but you got to stay good for a long time to do that, no matter how young you are. And to be this good, this young is is crazy rare. You know, obviously there's risks we're going to talk about, and I'm sure we're going to talk about since you brought up Correa. Uh, but at the same time, it makes sense. You know, I think this guy was obviously lined up to be a historic free agent. And no matter what, lock him up. And and I don't, you know, look, I, I'm I I am a pro player person. I know I was on the other side for that for a long time. And even during that, I was a pro player person. And pretty much every time someone gets a big number, my first reaction is always, "Hey, good for him. That's great." And um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the in the you know towards the in the latter third of this deal. At the same time, you know, it could it could be so. You know, we get so focused on the last part of a deal when a guy's making more money than his production, maybe, but you forget about 
you know, how much even these crazy AAVs can be a, a, a massive bargain compared to what they're delivering on the field. And, you know, I thought the deal was a, a good one for the Padres on the surface. And obviously it has risk just based on the length and, and things can go wrong. Yeah, you know, it's it strikes me. I mean, just looking at the year by years, I mean, you know, with regards to the to the structure of the deal, Tatis is is you know, is is getting paid early uh at a time when, you know, he's creating the, you know, quote unquote surplus value for the Padres. And, you know, but for the life of the deal, he's you know, he's maxing out at like what, like twenty four million dollars a year, which is which is about six million less than than Manny Machado. You know, the Manny Machado contract I think is is the one that they'll probably be you know, more likely, perhaps more likely to regret in the long run or, you know, towards the back end of it, at least when it's like, you know, oh, when he's no longer the elite third baseman. I assume both of them are going to be playing somewhere besides the left side of the infield by the time their deals are done. But um, to get to to just quickly summarize the 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 comps that I was finding here for the, for those of you listening who haven't uh, fully digested the piece yet, top hitters through age 21 since 1901, Fernando Tatis Jr., with a 154 OPS plus, and here I was working with baseball reference numbers because I was using the Stathead uh, play index. He's behind Mike Trout, Ted Williams, Albert Pujols, Jimmy Fox, and Rogers Hornsby. Literally, like some of the best hitters in baseball history. You guys are pretty you're good. Mi- good start. Yeah, you're missing Barry Bonds and Babe Ruth because they were sort of late bloomers relative to those guys. The next guy below him is Ty Cobb. <laughs> I mean, he was out hitting Ty Cobb through age 21. That's a rarity, um, and, and like yeah. you said, this whole thing's backload. You know, he doesn't get to twenty million until until twenty twenty five, and then the, you know the AAV really explodes the last five years or so when it's thirty six. But all that time, you know, from from now until twenty twenty eight, he's making like you said twenty five or less, and you know, with inflation, with you know, who knows what a new CBA structure is. Like, what will 36 look like in 2034? You know, we already have guys making more than 36 this year. It could it, it could not be that huge a number, really. Right. Getting back getting back to th- that list I, I, just, I just read here, the caveat is that, that Tatis only has 629 plate appearances, where Ty Cobb, for example, had 1,800-some through that time, and Albert Pujols uh, was the only one above him who had fewer than 1,000. But then I broke it down to, to top 21 and under seasons by shortstops. And even though Tatis doesn't have anything close to one full season along his two, he cracks the top top 22 with both of those years. And if you combine them into one, which, you know, is, may, might be a little bit of a dicey thing given the injury involved, but he winds up fourth behind Carlos Correa and above him Hornsby and A-Rod in terms of total value created for that age 21 season, if you will. Pretty actually actually dead even with Carlos Grieva. Seven seven war in basically a full season of playing time. And just about everybody on that list is a is a Hall of Famer, with only a few exceptions. And then when you when you prorate his war to a six hundred and fifty plate appearance season through age twenty one, you have only Mike Trout and Rogers Hornsby ahead of him, uh, 7.2 war per 650, Korea at 7 uh, per 650. So the frequency with which those two names wind up next to each other certainly had me wondering uh, the extent to which we might view Korea as sort of the cautionary tale for Tatis's career here. Uh, not that Korea is a bad player at all, but he's had a tremendously difficult time of staying on the field. He's played only 74% of the Astros games since arriving in the majors, which prorates about 120 per year. And while he's he's still what you'd say matching production on pace with, with uh, a good number of Hall of Famers, uh, I found 31 Hall of Famers with more production than him, 
through age 25 and 126 with less production than him through age 25. So you'd still say he's probably on a Hall of Fame pace. And yet he feels kind of like, you know, if you had, if, if you were, what, four years into into a $3,300 plus million dollar deal with him, you might be worrying because of the, the time he's missing. Kevin, what do you think? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think I think you'd be you'd be scared as hell. You're right, and you know I remember when when Carlos came up in 2015, and and he was the rookie of the year. You know he hit 22 home runs in 99 games that year as a rookie, and that's still his second highest career total. You know the next year he was good, he wasn't great. There was a big kind of power loss, and then like we like you said after that, it was just problems staying healthy. You know he, the, from 17 to 19 he averaged fewer than 100 games a year. And, and that's the real problem. And, and sometimes he was playing hurt and you saw he was very good in 17. He wasn't very good at all in 18 while playing through some injuries. I came back in 19 and looked like the guy you were hope you were getting. You know, he had 21 home runs in 75 games that year. He was just a, a, a real, it was, you know, so his best power production on a, on a rate basis by a mile. And then all of a sudden last year, he stayed healthy, he played 58 games last year. And I know it's a small sample, but it was a small sample season. And, but you know, it's 58 games and was not good at all. You know, it was a career low slugging of 383, uh, hit just 264. And I don't have a good explanation for what happened, but I think with as strange as the 2020 season is, there's a, there's about, I don't know, 300 players where I don't really have a good explanation for what <laughs> happened. So, and, you know, some good, some bad. Right. I think it'll be real interesting to see. Obviously, he's entering, you know, to use the cliche, he's entering a platform year. He is a free agent at the end of the year. And, you know, this is a real pivotal season for him. I think not only just on a business side, as far as, you know, what he's going to end up getting in the offseason, as far as a free agent contract, I don't think he's going to get an extension. I don't think he's going to sign an extension this spring. I, I think. I know that talks there. I, I think Carlos Curry is going to be a free agent. Right. But but you know, but I think the season's also kind of pivotal in helping us understand, you know, who this player is and, and what he will be going forward and maybe what his real chances for for a Hall of Fame career. You know, he's still got 20, you know, 26, 27, 20, 29. He's got four more seasons in his 20s. Right. It feels like he's been around forever, but he's got four more seasons in his 20s. He's got his prime coming up here and it's going to come down to, like you said, his ability to stay on the field, which has been an issue in the past. You know, he does, you know, end up with with, with you know some lower half issues, some back issues, and you know those kind of things are are troubling in the sense that before I went, you know, before I worked for a team, kind of the great white whale in the analytics world was injuries and injury projection, and I don't think teams have made any progress at all there. You know, I remember, you know, we had a, a very large project on it and all they really could come up with was a very loose generality that people who get hurt tend to get hurt again and guys who stay healthy tend to stay healthy. And that's all you know. Right. And Correa tends to get hurt. And I think there's good reason to think he'll tend to get hurt again. I think he's highly driven this year. I think he's, I think he, this kind of guy wants to be a free agent. You know, he wants to be court. He wants to be the dude. And in order to be the dude in this class of shortstop, he's going to have to have a full healthy year and be the Correa that you, you, you've seen flashes of for the last six seasons. Yeah, it's all really interesting. I mean, I think, you know, without getting, without, without straying too far from Tatis, you know, first of all, Korea, I, you know, I wondered a couple things about his season. First of all, you know, was there extra motivation there to try to prove the doubters wrong with regards to his health because he'd played just 75 games before? Was he playing through minor injuries that might have sidelined him before, you know, or not speaking up about injuries? And also, you know, was there cycle, extra psychological pressure because, 
you know, basically, you know, the Astros were, you know, were wearing the black hats last year because of the sign stealing scandal. And so I wonder if that was the weighing on him psychologically or, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going so far as to say that, you know, everything he did before last year was a function of, of, of having that help, because obviously that's not true if you look at the timelines. Sure. But, uh, you know, suddenly not having it hitting, you know, career worst numbers uh, does make for, you know, kind of an, an inconvenient coincidence. <laughs> um, you know, it's just not, not one of those things you're going to get very far trying to explain away. But back to Tatis and, and, and injuries, you know, one of the things that stuck out to me when, you know, when, when Ben Clemens wrote up the, the uh, initial react for the site on the contract and included the Zips projection is that the Zips projection is pretty conservative in terms of the amount of playing time that Tatis is getting. There isn't a single season there where he's got many more than 500 plate appearances, not even no 500 at bat seasons. And, and the way he laid it out, he didn't total plate appearances here. He's got at bats and walks separately, but, but eyeballing it, it's, it's, you know, that it's already building in, you know, a certain assumption of missed time, likely based on the fact that Tatis has not played a full season yet. And that got me thinking for some reason uh, of Barry Larkin, who never seemed to be able to stay on the field yet, mm-hmm. was so productive when he was on that he was, uh, uh, an easy Hall of Famer, not a first ballot guy, but but an easy Hall of Famer. And and again, thinking back to the model of Korea, that yeah, it's you know because you're young and because you're healthy and good when you're healthy, you still got a shot at this at putting up these kind of numbers. But Tatis kind of the same way. He you know he doesn't have to be Cal Ripken Jr. to pull this off. But but we probably don't have a very good way of articulating you know the risks involved that this guy. Could possibly be a total bust because he's, you know, he he's chronically injured. He has, let's just say, I don't know, just wait, you know, just more trouble staying on the field versus you know being uh, a durable guy who just kind of levels off and doesn't quite have that spectacular career, especially mm-hmm. if he has if he has to move off the position. And I think you know we saw by the metrics and by the eye test we saw some great improvement in Tatis defensively last year. But again, that's over a short season, and you know we we probably can't have a whole lot of confidence yet that he's you know going going to remain at that position for for the duration of this because that's hard. We don't see a lot of thirty five year old shortstops, or, or right, you know. right. I mean, he he feels to me like a shortstop at least through his twenties, and I I know he's he's a big shortstop, obviously, right. And those guys sometimes the, the the perfect example is the guy right next to him on the left side of the Padres infield, right? You know, right. obviously, Manny Machado was was that model. It's the big athletic shortstop, and all those guys end up moving to third. And I think there's a chance to you know to go back to who we talked about. Carlos Correa has a good chance to probably move to third in his late twenties as well. You know, obviously, he's got good hands, and the arm would play just fine there. Right. He would play anywhere, but. Uh, you know, I think another interesting guy who you know might be uh, another cautionary tale is Nomar Garcia Parra. Oh you yeah, know, obviously Nomar Garcia Parra was still at Georgia Tech when he was the age that that Tatis is right now. But you know, you're talking about a guy who you know his, he came up as a 23 year old. He was rookie of the year. You know, years three and four, he was MVP level with a, a thousand plus OPS. Missed nearly all of 2001. Played 21 games and then had two more good years, very good with the Red Sox. And and that was it. You know, his last good year was his age 29 season. Got hurt again in 2004, ended up going to the Cubs, never could stay healthy, and kind of trailed on for a little bit wild. One kind of bit of a bounce back year, just 120 games with the Dodgers at some point, and, you know, was done by 35, but, you know, was not nearly the player he was after the age of 29. And you wonder, you know, in modern baseball, 
the way teams structure contracts, the way teams look at young players, you do wonder like if after those first four years when they got, you know, a rookie of the year, followed by second place in the MVP, followed by two years of batting titles, if they extended Nomar for, you know, even just nine years, because he was 26, that thing could have looked pretty bad. Right. I think about Nomar and, you know, I know that because of the times he played and because of, you know, the confluence of so many other players, there's this assumption that, you know, that, that, you know, that he was doing PEDs and that might've had something to do with it. And I, you know, I, I certainly don't know either way, but he was such a gym rat and was just bursting with muscles and was just kind of a different physique anyway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I wonder how much, you know, whether, you know, whether or not he was whatever, I, I don't, you know, I don't care. And I'm not, I'm not trying to cast aspersions, but you know, whether his training habits were, you know, were conducive to, to having that long, that long-term career. Right. He's like a little too because tightly he, wound. Yeah. Too tightly wound, just too ripped, you know. And, this and, is the, this and that, is the Ruben Sierra story. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, just over, you know, overdone in that way. Let's and, just keep dating ourselves and talk about players from the 20th, late 20th century. Believe me, I do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I do it all the time. <laughs> I was I was making an illusion today that somebody somebody pointed to that that round looking ball on the on on Mars. My reference was that Willie Stargell hit it. <laughs> I mean, I might as well have like been stroking a four foot long gray beard when I said that. <laughs> I know anyone else accused no more PDs. I think PDs don't help you be a contact guy. This guy struck out thirty nine times right. in nineteen ninety nine. You know, he was a remarkable hitter. And it all kind of fell apart, you know, real quickly because he couldn't stay healthy. And I think that's that's the biggest risk. I don't think the risk is Tatis's talent. Tatis's talent is just it's phenomenal. I think you know it, it's we've seen that in the production of, as you've written, and and I don't think it takes any sort of brilliant scout to to watch this guy and see the tools. You know, it's 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 all right there, and, and you know the combination of tools, production, and and just kind of a maturity to the game at such a young age is 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 kind of galling. I don't think we've seen. A shortstop like this, I mean, I think the obvious comp for me, honestly, is A-Rod. You yeah. Know, it's, it's an A-Rod, it, you know, A-Rod invented the 6'4", strong as hell, super athletic shortstop. You know, that was that was what he was and that he changed the game in a lot of ways. And, you know, that's who Tatis reminds me of. And I, I think the biggest risk here is, is, is just health. Right. Well, that makes that, that makes sense. And that's an, certainly an interesting perspective, especially coming from, from your background. I wanted to talk a little bit also about the piece that you wrote kind of in conjunction with this, who will be the first $400 million player, which as we, as, as we noted back channel could have already come in with it, come with an asterisk because of the Mike Trout extension. Mm-hmm. But you, you, uh, you ran down a, a short list of players who could, uh, uh, who could fit that bill and, and gave some approximated odds. And the, the top of the list guy is a guy who whose name came up several times in the context of the of the piece I was hashing out, and that's Juan Soto, who's uh, the same age and who is right there in terms of uh, OPS plus or WRC plus. He's eighth on that top hitters uh, through age twenty one with a one fifty one OPS plus between Ty Cobb and the one guy who fizzled out on the list, Hal Trotsky, who was a good hitter in the thirties, uh, who had migraines, but uh, still uh, right among Hall of Famers there. And I, you know, I love to watch Soto hit, and and certainly he's got like that extra swagger that that sort of amplifies everything he does. Yeah. But I also I also see the defensive metrics on him, which are already 
kind of grim. Minus 15 defensive runs saved in, in 313 games, only briefly in right field and now in left field. And I wonder about, you know, the extent to which this guy is going to be, you know, the possibility this guy is going to wind up as a, as a DH only guy by the time he hits 30. And who's going to look? Who's going to look at that and and say, yeah, this is the guy we're going to, you know, break the bank for, you know, given those limitations. I mean, you'd pay that much for a DH who put up a an eleven eighty five OPS, <laughs> which yeah, yeah, I know it's a small sample size. That's what he put up last year. <laughs> yeah, no, look, I mean, sure, not his fault. The season was short. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone would pay for that much for a DH who at three fifty one four ninety six ninety five. Oh sure. You know, but you're right. I, I think that the bigger concern might be just like the concept of of old player skills, if you will. Yes. Um, yes. You know, and how, how those players age. And, you know, most of them don't age well. Most, you know, the Movons of the world. Let's keep doing 20th century players. It's great. You know, Movon. Oh, I, I got to remember some guy name for you here. Yeah, we'll Movon, we'll Alvin Davis, those kind of guys. The one guy who comes up on this list totally random in terms of uh, highest war through age 21 with fewer than a thousand plate appearances. Number seven on a list that's chock full of Hall of Famers, Tom Brunanski, the guy wow. who pretty much invented who, who Bill James invented the phrase old player skills for in the, in the early abstracts. That's great. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, I, I think he's a bad fielder. I don't think he's, he's a big, strong dude and he's not, but he's not a bad athlete, you know? Right. You know, he's, he stole six bases last year and that's in 47 games. You know, he was on pace for 15, 20 stolen bases. He's actually already said he wants to run more this spring, which will be, Fun to see if he does. I wouldn't let him run, but that's that's my cause. Would want him sliding in and busting an ankle or a finger. I would never let him run. But I don't think he's a horrible athlete. He does kind of have an old player skill set, but I don't think he's a bad athlete like some of these other guys we've talked about. And you know, for every dude who who fell off in his thirties, there's there's the Mo Bonds and Nelson Cruzes of the world, you know. And so I, I, I do believe in the old person skills, but I think there are exceptions. And I think this guy is such a special bat that he might be one. And, you know, to, to give him, to get him to 400 million, like you wouldn't be playing him when he's 39, which is, you know, what teams are doing with like your Mookie Betts and that. And obviously Betts is a, a way toolsy guy and, and a huge athlete. But you don't have to get him to like 36 or so. And, and I could see right. someone doing that. I mean, what happens if... I mean, if, if if Juan Soto has, you know, an 1100 OPS next year, I think it's something you need to consider. And, you know, the, the, the Nationals used to be a team who wrote pretty big checks. And think about what they did with Scherzer and Strasburg. But they, sure. like I wrote in the piece, it feels like they've kind of tightened their purse strings in the last two years since they won the World Series. Yeah, well, they've they've also you know, they they handed out they gave that deal to Strasburg and it's obviously gone south a bit in terms of the you know the fact that he couldn't didn't didn't even have a season last year. Ah, uh, pitchers. Um, yeah, ah, yeah, you know that it'll happen and and you know but the Scherzer deal is ending. You know they let they let Bryce Harper and Anthony Rondon walk away. You know you're right. It'll be interesting to see if if especially with Scherzer coming off the books or mm-hmm. you know. In you know, do for a you know a a reset of a contract if uh, if they do uh, get back to to spending money like that. But you know the one who strikes me on the list is you know speaking of tools, he obviously is the guy, the guy who's been the consensus prospect for for two years in a row, Wander Franco and the Rays. He's just not set up to be yeah a four hundred million dollar guy. Right, everything's going right for Wander Franco. You know he's 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 the the universal best prospect in baseball. You know we have him there. Baseball America has him there. MLB has him there. Keith Law has him there, and you know, I don't know anyone who even thought about another name. I and mean, this guy's like the slam dunk number one prospect in baseball. 
He's a teenager. I think he's big league ready or or close to it. He could play in the big leagues this year and do well. And then in you know in a year or two, you would be you know breaking out the piece you wrote about Tatis, and so all of a sudden dropping Wander Franco in there and seeing how right. that ranks up. And so the problem is he plays for the Rays. Like the 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 thing working against him as far as getting a four million dollar deal, and it's working against him in a way that almost eliminates the possibility. Is he plays for the Rays, and the Rays aren't going to give anyone a four hundred million dollar deal. The Rays would never consider giving Tatis three hundred and forty. It's just not how they operate. Right. You know, the, the the far better odd is that Fernando or is that you know Wander Franco gives the Rays five really good years and gets traded before his third arbitration year because they're not even going to want to afford that, mm-hmm. and that's just how the Rays operate. And so all of a sudden you're talking about he's been now he's twenty five. And that changes the math in terms of, of the length. And obviously to get to 400, you need a big AAV, but you also need a length. Right. And it's, 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 it's going to be tough to get that length when, you know, when you're 25 and it's going to have to get, you know, it's going to be this, it's the same thing we're seeing already. Like with Lindor, yeah, you get traded somewhere. And then, you know, as soon as Lindor trade thing happens, like, oh, they're going to sign to an extension, you know, and here we are. And it's, it's, you know, game start and spring training when, you know, three, four days and, the season starts in, in five, six weeks, and you already have Lindor saying, I'm not going to talk about extension once the season starts. And, you know, it's no guarantee at all that these guys are just going to you know, sign him and you get him into extension. There's no guarantee of that at all. And so all of a sudden he's going to, he becomes a free agent, and then you have the same risk. Like, you know, we have five or six years elite talent. We have a five or six-year window for things to go wrong for, for Wander Franco. And there is a significant chance that things will go wrong, just like they would be for any player. And so I think that's what kills his odds is just the fact that he is a Tampa Bay Ray. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. I think we've, we could talk about this stuff forever here. I guess the one, one thing I I, I wanted to, wanted to think about in, in closing, I mean, with the way that this is lined up is, do you think the Tatis contract is good for baseball? Do you think it's a a sign that of, of, of a healthier game if especially if it's a if it's a, you know not the Dodgers not the Yankees not the Red Sox or Cubs you know somebody from outside the you know the the traditional big spenders uh signing him well I mean like you said the Padres are this is not even their first 300 million dollar deal they they went pretty big on Machado obviously and I just think it shows that the Padres are willing to do it and I do think it puts pressure on other teams yeah. just says to other teams like maybe the act isn't going to work. You can't scream from the trees biblical losses because teams are going to go, well, the Padres do it. You can't do right. it. Right. Yeah, because a lot of teams do that. Like, well, we're not the Yankees. We're not the Dodgers. And like, right. you can go, well, you're kind of the Padres, right? Right. You right. know? Yeah, and, it, makes, and, it makes the Indians look kind of silly for, what for you know, right. kind of botch, botching the Lindor, their handling of Lindor and, and the Cubs with Chris Bryant and, and... And the Rays with what they do. And I know we yeah. all like to fanboy over the Rays and everything like that, but the Rays are, are in that same bucket with the Indians. They just get credit because they're really good at it and they win more games. They get to the World Series once in a while. But, you know, if, if you're mad at what the, the Indians are and you praise the Rays, I think that's hypocritical. You know, yeah. the Rays do the same thing financially. And, and uh, you know, I'll tell you this, Jay, and, and you know, this gets me in trouble sometimes. I don't care. You know, before I worked in baseball, I used to say owning a baseball team is a license to print money. Eight years on the other side did nothing to dissuade me of that notion. Right. And so... You know, the excuses are such a, a weird snapshot in time. Did teams lose money last year? Absolutely. Lost a ton of it, you know. 
but and I've made this analogy before, you know, Jay, if I give you $10 every year for six years, and then the next year I make you give me 20, you can scream biblical losses. <laughs> like you can go, I've, I, I lost more money in the, in the KG business, twice as much money last year than I ever made in a single year. But you know what? Over that seven year period, you still made 40 bucks, right? Right. You know, and, and I think it's such a weird snapshot in time to just go, oh, biblical losses and. And just, you know, talking about debt servicing and, you know, so many of these teams are making money out of things way outside of baseball. And so many teams are, and, and look, on a business side, it's a smart thing to do. So many teams are like buying all this land around the stadium. And, you know, the Cubs are one of the more famous parts in, in what is a very expensive, very popular, very revenue generating amount of real estate around Wrigley Field. And then you buy, oh, we have all those debts are servicing. It's because you bought all this land. Right. You know, don't act like you're poor. You know, it's it's, it's just an insane kind of thing. Like credit card bills. Yeah, it's like this weird <laughs> thing. And it's just like, and I don't, and I I feel like, and I have seen think we've seen this, you know, like with the biblical losses. And even, you can even relate to some of the stuff we heard with the whole Mariners brouhaha this week is just, and this happened, not to get political, but I think we've seen this in, in the politics over the last two years where just, you know, people started saying the quiet part loud. And I know people have used that headline a lot for the Mariners thing. And I think people are going to stop buying it. And I think something like this actually drives it far more than 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 kind of financial things where it's like you are we have the same kind of we're the same financial level we're the same market stratosphere as the Padres they went out and got Manny Machado and then re, you know one of the best free agents of the year and gave him 300 million dollars they had a generational young star and they locked him up for 14 years at 340 i'm not really interested in the in the in the crying poor here yeah yeah, I think that's I think that's entirely fair, and I think that's that's kind of where I fall on it too. Is like this this is this is kind of a message to ten teams that that you know kind of go through the boom and bust cycles to shut the right. hell up and, and get out their checkbooks and and, right, and I think it's fine know, to rebuild. Yeah. Like I don't you know I, it, it's it's you know the whole tanking thing. I'm very much like you know my my general attitude toward that is kind of don't hate the player, hate the game, and I'm right. fine with with you know I would agree with rules you could create to to prevent tanking. But as long as it's there, like I understand, it doesn't make a ton of sense to go from sixty-eight to seventy-two wins. I get that. Yeah. The thing is, you get you just get trapped in it, and you go like, if you never go from sixty-eight to seventy-two, how are you going to go from seventy-two to seventy-six? You know, and how are you going to go from mm-hmm. seventy-six to eighty-three? And then how are you going to go from eighty-three to a playoff team? You're just going to get stuck at sixty-eight the whole time. So you're like, well, making a seventy-four makes no sense. Like you got to get better. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that's where we are, and, and I, I I hope this leads to, like you say. More teams doing it and us ending up with, you know, less of the have and have nots. But I think some of that's going to require, you know, uh, some some structural changes that are come with the next CBA. And and, and we'll see how that works out because that's going to be a that's going to be a good time. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, on that note. <laughs> on that cheery note of, of <laughs> impending labor doom, I think we could probably end it here. Kevin, thank you so much for your insights on this wide-ranging discussion here into young shortstops and, and team building. And for Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe. I am Ben Clemens. I'm joined by Dan Zimborski. And Dan, I was very intrigued by your article about the Cincinnati Reds, largely because I'm intrigued by the Cincinnati Reds, and I just wanted to talk to you some about it. Yeah, it's it's always fun to talk about the Reds, because I'm a member of the Cincinnati chapter of the Baseball Writers Association, so I can directly annoy 
people that I will see more often when I write about the Reds. It's it's a team that interested me like in the in the last few winters when they've actually been one of the few teams that have really been pushing forward and now you know they're kind of drawing back right at the opportunity to to you know succeed and it's it's just very very disappointing to me. Yeah, it's very interesting because as you mentioned in your piece, they've been the heroes the past few off seasons. They've made a lot of moves that are opportunistic and make sense and give them a good shot at the playoffs when other teams might have been safer and not gone for it. Yeah, it's it, it it was nice to see, but they've kind of backed up a bit. You see that, you know, they have a new front office, essentially Dick Williams stepped down at the end of the season. You know, the the dreaded, you know, spending time with the family, which probably isn't quite that. It's unfortunate, and I think that a lot of the locals aren't very happy with it. So right now I'd call the team better than the chili, but worse than the sausage. I don't actually know what Cincinnati sausage is, but... Better than well, the chili a, is. Well, it, it's a lot better than the chili. Uh, Cincinnati is a very German city, uh, so they have the Hofbrau House down there. They have a lot of good sausage in, in Ohio. Yeah, so to point out the, the biggest flaw in the Reds' plans, you can just look at who they have playing shortstop. Do they have anyone playing shortstop? I, I've been joking that their shortstop right now is the shrugging emoji. But that's kind of where they are now. This was a great offseason to get a shortstop. There were a number available in free agency. There were, you know, a number of cheaper options. You know, Jose Iglesias was out there for, for a trade. And the Reds, I mean, they kind of teased that maybe they were, you know, talking with the Rays. But nothing happened. And, you know, at this point in the offseason, teams aren't going to be all that excited to to give up their starting shortstop. I mean, the Rays are a team that are usually interesting trading, but at this point you say, hey, are, are you going to trade Adamus? And they're probably going to say no because spring training is already open unless the Reds bowl them over, and I don't think they are at this point. Yeah, you never want to be in a situation where to not be awful, you need to bowl someone over. That's bad planning. Yeah, I think well, what what just makes it especially disappointing is because the cost of the free agents that, that played shortstop this year was not overwhelming. Uh, Simmons did not cost a lot of money. Kim did not cost a lot of money. It's not a situation where to get one of these guys that was that was available that you had to commit to, say, you know, an eight-year, $250 million contract. When you have all these options, all of pretty much who were available under $50 million, it, it feels just like a failure of the organization from top to bottom. And while that doesn't doom the Reds in this division, it it just puts them at a disadvantage. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And I think what makes it most confusing is just that this team isn't built to punt for the future. No, it's it doesn't have a deep farm system right now. You didn't see many names in the top 100 or near the top 100 list. And it's an old team. I mean, they have Joey Votto out there. They have Mistakas. Uh, they have Castellanos. He's not old, but he's not young either. And the pitching staff is good now. And the thing about healthy pitchers is if they're excellent right now, you have to consider that their peak because there's a, there's a huge attrition rate with pitchers. So this was the opportunity. And the fact that for most of the winter until, you know, the Nolan Arenado trade, it looked like nobody else in the NL Central was that was that interested in competing either. Uh, it, it goes into, I think it was Warren Buffett's old thing that, that when people get scared, he feels confident, and when people are confident, then he gets scared. Exactly. And he even said, put all your eggs in one basket and watch that basket, and the Reds don't seem to be doing that either. No, they they, they have a few eggs, and they figure maybe it'll be enough eggs. Maybe four deviled eggs is, is enough for the party. Yeah, as I look over their lineup, their youngest starter, position-playing starter, is Jesse Winker. He's 27, 
and he'll turn 28 in August. So again, they're they're not a young lineup, but they're not a bad lineup either. Their best hitters are probably, would you say, Castellanos and Suarez? Probably at this point. One of the things they can you know, look at is their batting average on balls in play was absurdly low last year. Uh, I don't have the exact projection in front of me, but Zips estimated that their batting average on balls in play based on their stat cast and, and similar data should have been considerably higher than it was. I think it was like 40 points. It was a ridiculous number. So they'll get some kind of bounce there. They're probably not, you know, really the 13th best offense in the NL. They're better than that. Right. But, you know, when you don't have any mass, they do have one massive hole, and that's the best way to upgrade an offense. It's hard to upgrade on average players, and there's a lot of average there. So that, it was so obvious, it, it should be frustrating for anyone who likes the team. And you talk about the outfield, and they haven't really clarified that situation at all. They still have, you know, about five outfielders for three positions. They have absolutely no idea what to do with Nick Senzel. I got a pretty negative reaction from, you know, people on Twitter when I said, you know, if you're not going to play Senzel full time in the outfield or just haven't been a timeshare, you might as well try him at shortstop because what do you have to lose? But that's the situation. There's no creativity to kind of even make up for this lack of organizational verve, we'll say. Yeah. So as you said, it's hard to upgrade on average. And the, the kind of counterside to that is if you don't have a, a true star, you can't afford to be bad anywhere. No, you. It, it's hard because there's no Mike Trout to make up for things. I guess the Angels have had the opposite problem is they've had the star, but they've left you know holes around Trout. Uh, but that kind of that kind of team is easier to upgrade because when you start with Mike Trout, you you have Mike Trout. Uh, the Angels' challenge has always been you know to build an 80 win team around Trout. They can't really do that, and that's their fault. But the Reds, they don't have that to lean on. Right. It just feels like they. They didn't quite decide what they were going to do until way too late. And then a lot of the things that they're doing just feel like reactions to that. Like, why trade Rysel Iglesias? Because we thought that a team that had so many holes in the lineup or, like, not enough punch in the lineup couldn't afford to be spending this much money on the closer. But then then they didn't improve the lineup. Yeah, they, they, they addressed the weakness by trading a surplus, but then didn't actually use that surplus to address the weakness. They just got, you know, a younger, less expensive reliever. Yeah. And it's not a huge payroll team. Yeah, it sounds like uh, they're just playing a bunch of different musical phrases, but they're not related and they don't go together. Because I've, I've liked, in the abstract, lots of things they've done in the past few years. And I look at the, the synthesis and I'm just like, what, what is this? <laughs> they have 75 outfielders, none of whom can play center field. <laughs> um, <laughs> they have 75 shortstops they're all below re replacement level yeah it's odd <laughs> it's, it's just really weird it seems like the, the kind of team that an ai who didn't understand what they were doing might might come up with for how to build a team but then you kind of expect the the humans in the room to say all right well we've looked at this roster and luckily because it's constructed so bizarrely there are some obvious places to upgrade and they just didn't do that yeah, I think some teams go into an offseason where it's kind of tricky to figure out where they should go. But the Reds' needs are not surprises. Pretty much every one other team is an established player at this point, except for, you know, I guess you can call Nick Zell. He hasn't really had a full healthy season yet. But, yeah, and Tyler Stevenson, if they're lucky, will establish himself before long. Yeah, and I mean, their arms, their, their, their rotation is still really good, even without Trevor Bauer. So naturally, of course, you know, this offseason they were making noise 
denied by the team, but you know, when there's smoke, there's fire. They, I think that they were at least discussing uh, Luis Castillo and Sonny Gray trades with with different teams. So it's 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 hard if if if, if a Cincinnati fan came to me and said, Dan. Why should I be happy about this season? I mean, I can't really give them any, you know, positive thing that's really about the Reds. I could say, well, the division's not that good. And that's kind of depressing. Like, oh, the the positive news is they might be good enough to win this yeah. division. I mean, I, there are positive. There's lots of things to like about the Reds, but it's mostly that some of the players are really fun. Yeah, I mean Suarez is a lot of fun. It's it's fun seeing Mustakis at second base, and I give the team credit for that. To I mean, obviously the Brewers get the did the first experiment with him at second base, but they committed to him at second uh, without a fallback position. So I like that they did that. But you don't see any more of that thinking that going forward. It, it appears. Yeah, actually, we still have them as the sixth best rotation in baseball per uh, per depth charts, even yeah. after losing Bauer. Yeah, it's 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 a good rotation. It's it's just it's. This is the peak of it. It's going to get worse from here just because that's how pictures work. And yeah, by gravity. When I when I projected in for the article, I projected, you know, very, very preliminary projections for just the strength in the system for the next several years. And when you look, you know, three, four years from now, based on what they have in the system, the Reds rank the worst in the NL Central. So that that kind of thing. I can't think that all their analysts are unaware of this kind of thing. It, it should have made them just more urgent. And it's not happening. One thing that I think teams want to kind of get both sides of is if you believe that you need to have competitive cycles, as in when your team is not competitive, you need to take a step back and tear down and build for the future. The other side of that is that when your team is good now, you need to expend future resources to work for now. Like you want to work both sides of that. You don't want to just constantly like build for the future. When you happen to get a good crop in the present, you should, without much in the future, you should maximize those resources and it just feels like they're unwilling to do that part that's that's what happened kind of with the pirates if if you go back five years sorry reds fans <laughs> you're the pirates of five years ago <laughs> uh, but what are the, people act like that uh neil huntington and frank Connolly that they failed in a sense but what kind of happened was the organizational commitment to it because they built it up and they did that part right but there was that moment to go over the top to secure, you know, yeah, 2014 your, or whatever. Yeah, your peak performance. And when, you know, when the organization expected that to happen, it, it never happened. They never went over the top. They just stayed in the trench. It's like, yeah, it, it's fine in long term to rebuild as long as when the time comes, you put the resources in. But they decided they didn't want to spend the resources at all. I don't think the Pirates payroll has ever hit $100 million, which is just crazy in 2021. I mean, even the Royals have blown through that. Yeah, I was going to say, if you want to look at a team that the Reds could aspire to be like, it'd be the Royals. Yeah, but... Not not so much the development plan, <laughs> but the fact that when the Royals found themselves in the part of the competitive cycle where they were competing for AL titles, they spent. Yeah, for all the, for all the heat I give the Royals about a lot of things, they did sense the moment where it was now or nothing. I, I think it was from 2008 to 2016, the Royals spent more in free agency than the Cardinals did, which 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 I know shocked a lot of people at the time. But, I mean, they didn't keep it up, but they knew it. And, that, and for all the things you say about the Royals, they were familiar with where they were at that moment, and they rose to the moment. You know, they brought in Johnny Cueto. They did these things that they needed to to, to maximize yeah. their their chances. And they, you know, they flipped heads every time in the playoffs, and it worked out. 
And so they tried. So that's that's why it's really hard to, you know, completely, you know, dump on the Royals. Even now, in this offseason, where they're not really a good team, and I don't think their plan is good, but they're executing it like they care. And yeah. just having teams that kind of care is is a nice in 2021. I'd argue there's a little bit of, like, strategy tactics stuff here, where I think the Reds are mostly making positive surplus value trades and positive surplus value moves. I think the Rizal Iglesias trade, they, you know, if you have to declare a winner in terms of who will get more production per dollar spent out of that, I think they won. Yeah, it's it's like a chess game in a way, because against a very good chess player, you can win little moments, but the good chess player is accumulating, you know, little gains here and there that all work together for a particular goal. Yeah. And that's in and, and isolation, a lot of what the Reds done is fine, but it just doesn't actually meet their needs it doesn't fulfill their their win condition so to speak yeah i would say it's frustrating for us because i know for me at least i have a lot of fun analyzing the tactics the little moves the uh the single move in isolation and saying oh this makes sense they've picked something up by doing this oh this contract is good oh this trade was nice oh i like this prospect but the big picture matters too and it it's just frustrating because i've liked so many little things they've done and i thought two years ago they came up with a very clever big picture move and they're just complete lack of follow-through is really disappointing yeah i love i love the bauer trade it was one of those things that a lot of teams wouldn't do because they went into 2018 or 19 all the years are running together now in my head 2019 it was wasn't it yeah we're in 2021 (laughs) but their plan for 2019 it didn't work out for most of the season and instead of folding and just giving up on what they were doing they did double down in it they said hey we're gonna make this this trade for Bauer because even though this year doesn't work out, we still have the elements to be good in 2020. And that was, that was a laudable. Those were good moves. Yeah. Sunny gray move. Same kind of deal that it was very smart. I thought given yeah. the construction of their team to go send off shed long. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Whoever else they sent away in that trade. I think it was competitive balance round a pick, which I think is the, is the pick, not a person with that unfortunate name. <laughs> parents who just didn't like him very much (laughs) yeah but i guess the point is like when you see this front office making those moves and like you said there's been turnover so it's it's not the same people but that was really really wise and it looked like oh this is like the rare team that understands their place in the competitive cycle and also is doing little things like the mustakas move i thought was awesome too i'm totally with you and then they're building up they're building up it feels like they've gotten a little unlucky the past two years like you said their babbit was just unreal and instead of just playing the hand out that was dealt, they're just like doing this weird half fold thing. Yeah, I I mean, as you say, I like a lot of the things they've done. I mean, the hiring of Kyle Body uh, a, a couple years ago now to you know be the director of pitching. Yeah, th- these are clever moves that have huge upside uh, because I'm I'm sure they didn't give him millions of dollars. If if they did, then I'm kind of in the wrong part of the baseball industry. I need to recalibrate. <laughs> but these kinds of moves have have just are good for the team and just this winter has been bad for the team i understand the short-term revenue problems of of covid19 but covid19 doesn't change the basic contours of the roster right i think i basically agree with you that like we both really want to like what the reds have done and they just haven't quite made us able to Uh, but i do like what the cardinals have done so i'm sure you you're happier about that yeah i actually i like what the cardinals have done quite a lot i actually question why they let Colton Wong go. I think if they had it all to do again, they might have done things slightly differently. 
because the fact that he went to the Brewers really, really hurts. Like that was a that was a big upgrade for the Brewers, and the Brewers made no other moves. And I don't think they would have been able to find a second baseman that delivers the amount of value that Wong does at their price range. So I, I think letting Wong go ended up hurting them a lot more than they thought. But how can you not like a team going out and basically spending nothing to, or surrendering nothing to get a superstar? It's just it is a strong juxtaposition with the Reds, where I would argue the Cardinals have made some bad tactical moves uh, with their roster in the past few years. They've been really unable to figure out who their outfield is, even worse than the Reds. And they've consolidated kind of poorly various times. But the the strategy kind of wins out in that they're just trying to win a bunch of baseball games. It's too bad they couldn't figure out how to get the Rockies to give them 50 million. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We'll take story. They should have traded if you, for... If you give right. us 50 million, we'll take story. Yeah, we'll pay his entire salary. But we are going to need 50 million dollars. <laughs> I think the Central is going to be kind of depressing this year. As a Cardinals fan, I'm I'm not happy to say that. But I won't be depressed because I'm going to get to watch Nolan Arenado play a bunch. Arenado, rather. And and that and even in a down season, that kind of thing does have value to a team. There's still something interesting to watch, even if the even if the Cardinals bomb and they never really bomb. They they never really win between 86 and 90 games, no matter what they do. Uh, it's yeah. it's it's kind of uncanny. I I think I wrote a piece on that, or I might have done it in one of my wrap up pieces about St. Louis. But, I mean, the Reds are at least going to be a watchable team on a lot of days. And I like that because, you know, after I get my vaccine, I'm I'm looking forward to re- returning to the stadium uh, because I never did find the bourbon slushies at Great American Park. You know, we've talked about these various times, and I'm very interested in bourbon slushies. I don't know if I would like them. It sounds like it would be divisive. I don't know. It's it's liquor, and I'm kind of working, so it's liquor while working. And who <laughs> who can complain about that? <laughs> that is true. I'm looking forward to being able to go to baseball games and get actual baseball concessions. I went to like three A's games this year in the playoffs, and the concessions that I got were a boxed lunch they handed me. Oh, at least you ha- had the boxed lunch, but it, it feels weird. It feels like you're like in a kid and your parents sent that with you to school. Yeah, like I want some sausage of some type. It doesn't have to be a hot dog. Like it could be an Italian sausage or something. And I want a beer and it just feels weird to watch baseball without those. I guess we've gone kind of far afield from the Reds, but... Hey, we're we're talking about food that's offered in, in that's Cincinnati. True. In the Great American Ballpark? Yeah, at Great American, I mean, uh, in the press box, you can get, like, turkey sandwiches and stuff. But, you know, I, I, I just can't do that when I'm at a stadium. I, I see people eating the turkey. I'm like, you know, there's hot dogs. You just take the elevator down and you get a hot dog. Uh, of course, so I think close. that's why I have a larger waist size than many of the people in the press box. So that 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 could be a, an alternate take on ballpark food. I guess if you're a beat writer, it would really stack up if you had a if you had a hot dog every time. They're going very frequently. Yeah, because there's a hot dog stand. There's there's a Belgian waffle stand, uh, which is which is really good. Uh, I do like modern parks and the the culinary offerings. What a waste for a team with a Belgian waffle stand to not try harder to win. I mean. What's better than eating a literally a dessert in the middle of the day at the stadium for a competitive team? That sounds awesome. I would really enjoy doing that. Well, I'll wrap I'll wrap up with with what's even better: having a Belgian waffle and a bourbon slushy. <laughs> and that's the dream for the Reds. Uh, I guess for Dan Zimborski, I'm Ben Clemens, and this was our partially discussion of why we're sad about the Reds, partially discussion of why we wish we liked them more. This has been Fangraphs Audio. We hope you enjoyed the program. You can help us out by spreading the word and getting someone else to enjoy the program too, if you weren't so inclined.
We will be back next week with more baseball discussion for you. Have a good weekend.